We continue the sermon series through the book of Genesis, chapters 1 through 3. Let us ask the Lord to bless the reading and hearing of His Word. Let us pray together as we sing. Now to him who loves us, who has freed us from our sins by his blood, to Jesus Christ, be all praise, honor, and glory. Amen. The Word of God, the book of Genesis, chapter 1, beginning the reading at verse 24, it is written, and God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Amen. 
Two weeks ago, Pastor Jonathan began his sermon by asking the question, what does it mean to be human? It's a great question to ask and even better question to answer. In that sermon, Pastor Jonathan introduced us to some major concepts or themes related to the doctrine of humanity created in the image of God. And let me say, that doctrine, the doctrine of humanity as created in the image of God, as we shall see, has particular relevance, application for this culture in which we are now living. Last Sunday, Pastor Jonathan built upon that foundation, focusing on what it means for us, for humanity to have dominion over creation, that is, human dominion, the word there is lordship, lordship over creation exercised in a way that reflects the goodness and the generosity and the righteousness and the faithfulness and the love of the Creator for His glory. And part of that, being created in the image of God, as we saw over the past two Sundays, has to do with being created to live upon the earth as the visible image of the invisible God, to be God's vice regents, to be His representatives upon the earth as stewards of the creation, exercising lordship under the king of creation. And this morning we're going to stay right here again, Genesis 1:27. So God created man, that is humanity, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. I want us to see how this verse lays the foundation now for our understanding of the sanctity of human life, the sanctity of human sexuality, and the sanctity of the ultimate purpose or highest goal of human life. Now, the word sanctity is the same word as holiness in the sense of being set apart as special, having a distinct, unique status or a special purpose. For example, right now we are in a sanctuary, a special place, set apart for a special purpose, the corporate worship of God. And so we could speak of the sanctity of this place in that sense. So when we speak of the sanctity of human life, we mean that human life, in distinction from all other living things in creation, humanity has a special, a unique status, a unique purpose, because humanity has been created in the image of God. No other life form, plant, or animal, or angel has been created in the image of God. Let's dig in just a little bit deeper there. First of all, reiterating the fact that the phrase, in our image, after our likeness, does not refer to any physical resemblance with God. The catechism, the children's catechism teaches us God is a spirit. Jesus teaches us God is a spirit and does not have a body like humans. But when God created humanity in His own image, God endowed humanity with some of, not all, but with some of His own divine attributes so that humanity might live on the earth as His royal 
vice-regents, his representatives, his lords and ladies, if you will, of his creation. Now, for example, humans have the attribute of rationality. That is, we are reasoning, thinking creatures. The Westminster Confession of Faith speaks of humanity, male and female, having been created with reasonable souls. That implies, first of all, a a consciousness of self. I sort of have the memory. Uh, do you kind of have a memory of, of, of a sort of a childhood memory of when you, you just became aware that you were, you, you were alive? You were you. you yep, there, here I am. <laughs> a self Conscious, a consciousness of self, and then the, the ability to abstract, to, to contemplate abstract concepts, which, which then provides the capacity for moral discernment, which in turn enables the human creature to engage in interpersonal relationships, not only with fellow human beings and the creation in general, but God Himself. Now, Jonathan emphasized two weeks ago, very, very, very important point, that our capacity for, our desire for, and our enjoyment of interpersonal relationships and that longing for connection that we all have, you see, is a reflection of the image and likeness of the Trinity, the divine triune God, one God in three divine persons who for all eternity have enjoyed the ever-blessed interpersonal communion of love as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Our longing for personal connection, our longing for belonging, our longing to love and to be loved, our longing to know and to be known, intimacy is a reflection of the divine everlasting love within the being of the eternal trinity. Well, then there is the ability to communicate in complex language, as I'm attempting to do now, and you are able to understand, which in turn enables all manner of creative activity, intellectual pursuits, scientific endeavor, the accomplishment of goals in an orderly fashion. It's all right there in Genesis 1. No other creature shares these attributes of God. In addition to which, humans have a spiritual nature. A sense of the transcendent. A desire, even a compulsion, to worship something whether the true God or a false God. We are, by nature, religious, truly or falsely, which again reflects the image of God in us. Now, many of you know that I have a Labrador retriever, the Reverend. He's in my office right now, as a matter of fact. I love him, and I think he's very smart. But unlike his master and Lord, me, he's not contemplating 
looking forward to or counting the days until duck season. Nor is he thinking about how he could improve his retrieving skills. Nor does he go out and practice on his own initiative. Nor does he have the capacity to give thanks to his creator for the blessing of a beautiful morning in the duck blind. There is a difference between a man and his dog. And that difference is not the meaningless result of a random and meaningless evolutionary process. God created man, humankind, in his own image, in the image of God. He created him male and female. He created them. And think about the ancient Israelites of Moses' day as Moses was teaching them. He was teaching them that they were created to be the vice regent of the only king of creation. He was conferring upon them a dignity and value that they had never ever conceived for themselves. Think about it. Where had they been? What had their status been? These were slaves, children of slaves, grandchildren of slaves in Egypt. In a land in which Only the Pharaohs were the image of God. Only the Pharaohs were the kings upon the earth. Oh no, says the word of God, all of you, all of you are created in the image of God. All of you have a royal status. All of you are the visible image of the invisible God. Astounding, especially when you put it in its ancient Near Eastern historical cultural context. Therefore, human life has a special status, a special purpose, a sanctity, because humans, even though now fallen, even though now sinful, human still bear a vestige of the image of God. And we, I want to pause here because sometimes, um, popularly, so to speak, we take the doctrine of being created in the image of God, and then, that, then, then the, the automatic assumption is, so I'm just fine the way I am. You hear it all the time. God don't make no junk, right? So, wait a minute, hold it. We are not in that original state. Now, right now we're in Genesis 1, but Genesis 3 is coming. Right? So, yes, we are created in the image of God. Yes, we bear the image of God. Yes, but due to our sin, due to our fall in Adam, that image of God has been defaced. It has been marred. It has been damaged. We are not what we were created in Adam before the fall. So there's, even though we're created in the image of God and we have a dignity, there is a need for salvation and redemption. 
Nevertheless, now going back to the main big point, even though fallen, even though now sinful, all humans still bear a vestige of the image of God. If you've ever, for example, uh, toured Europe and, and you see the, the ruins of a great castle, your imagination can take you to, to what, what that castle must have been like in its glory and its grandeur before it began to deteriorate. Right? So we're, we're, we're looking at ruined castles, if you will. It's there. We can see it. We can imagine what it might have been like, but we don't see it now. Nevertheless, humans still bear a vestige of the image of God, and therefore, for example, the Word of God prohibits murder on this very basis. In fact, the Word of God prescribes the death penalty for first-degree murder on this very basis for God made man in his own image, Genesis 9-6. Now, positively, positively, the fact that humanity was created in the image of God provides the logical link between the commandments to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and your neighbor as yourself. Love for God is shown in a way in which we love our neighbor, who, though fallen, still bears some remaining vestige of God's image. Love for our neighbor, therefore, shows our love for God, who created our neighbor in His own image. And John Calvin comments in this way, Scripture helps us in the best way when it teaches us that we are to look upon the image of God in all men to which we owe all honor and love. Why am I to love my neighbor as myself? Because my neighbor is an image bearer created in the image of God. Now, what's Calvin's point? Calvin's point is that God the Creator has conferred upon humanity that special dignity and unique value, having been created in His image and likeness to be His representative upon the earth. And not even the effects of the fall of man have totally obliterated or completely eviscerated the image of of God, and therefore we ought to acknowledge and honor and respect the image of God in every human being. And my goodness, in a culture of such animosity, disrespect, hostility, discourtesy, now is the time for Christian people. To be the salt of the earth and the light of the world in showing honor and respect to fellow image bearers. This begins at conception, at the conception of human life, and it continues until death. And though we're not going deeply into these subjects, it, it immediately applies to the issues of abortion, assisted suicide, and euthanasia, the so-called mercy killing of physically or mentally incapacitated persons. 
It applies to the intentional and indiscriminate killing of non-combatant civilians in war. All of these issues ultimately are connected to the image of God in humanity. And these abominable atrocities have no place in the Christian faith and life, nor ought they to have any place in human civilization, except to be opposed, grieved, rejected, and repented of. Other applications of the sanctity of human life include our attitudes and relationships regarding race. In reality, there is only one race. It is the human race. And that ought to be clear from the special creation of Adam and Eve in God's own image. And we'll get to this in in chapter 2, but even in chapter 1, you know, when, when, when God is creating the birds of the heavens and the, the fish of the sea and the, and the beasts of the field. He just calls them forth. But when He begins to create humanity, He does so in a, he does so in a very deliberate purpose, a manner. He deliberates. He contemplates. Let us make man in our own image. We'll see in chapter 2 the particularly um, unique way in which God created man and in woman. But as the Apostle Paul said to the philosophers in Athens, God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. So there's no, there is no super race or superior race or especially favored race. Nor is there a cursed race. The fact of the matter is that all humanity is cursed in Adam. All humanity is cursed under the guilt of sin. And all humanity, people of every tribe and tongue and ethnic identity, are offered the merciful favor and free grace of God in Jesus Christ. And yet today, we hear of neo-Nazi white supremacist organizations in our nation. Some of them have the audacity, the gall, to use the word Christian in the title of their organizations. What an utter blasphemy. What a hellish blasphemy. To take the name of Christ, the second Adam, the Redeemer of the world, and apply it to an ideology of white supremacy. What a gross, gross, vile, pernicious blasphemy. Now, I don't for a second suspect or think that there's anyone in this sanctuary who would identify himself or herself as a white supremacist or a neo-Nazi. I don't think that at all. But the thing is, I do know, and I'm, I'm I'm quite sure of it, actually, that there's one person in this sanctuary right now 
who in certain circumstances, if he really pays attention to the inner workings of his mind, if he in a, in a particular situation becomes self-aware enough to bring into consciousness some of his unconscious thoughts and feelings and attitudes and presuppositions and assumptions and, 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 and cultural influences and ways of relating, then in, in, that, in that moment of enlightenment, so to speak, he has to confess that there's something in his sinful nature that is in fact akin to racism even if it's not malignant or malicious. I don't presume or pretend to be the judge of any person's heart. I just happen to know fairly well the corrupted heart of one person about whom I am speaking. This isn't a guilt trip. This isn't about a guilt trip. This is an issue rooted not merely in our American history or our personal experience, but first of all, in our fallen human nature, the fallen human nature of every person of every ethnic identity. Racism in all its forms now continues to divide this nation and our communities, and there are political forces, both right and left, who want racism to continue to divide our nation for our own political advantage. And the church of Jesus Christ ought not to buy into that at all. And it's not just a matter of black and white, but also attitudes, relationships with and among our Hispanic, Latino, Asian, and Middle Eastern neighbors. So what's the answer? The answer is God created man, humanity, in his own image. In the image of God he created them. Male and female he created them. And so as representatives of the creator of all humanity, we ought to pay particular care and attention to the way in which we regard and relate to people of ethnic identities different from our own. Becoming more conscious of any impulses and inclinations of racism within our own hearts and repenting of it. Respecting and honoring all our fellow human beings as fellow image bearers of God. And if Genesis 1 is not enough to guide our thoughts and attitudes, though it ought to be, but if it isn't enough, let us as professing Christians remember that God so loved the, that He gave His only begotten Son that should not perish but have everlasting life and therefore heaven resounds with the song of praise to Jesus Christ you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation you see brothers and sisters there is not one iota of racism around the throne of God And if God is on the throne of our hearts, there's no place for racism there either. Still another way in which the image of God applies to the sanctity of all human life has to do with this phrase, this marvelous phrase, this wonderful phrase, this, this phrase which ought to astound you, male and female, he created them. Now, in verses 26 and 27, the word man, let us make man in our image. So God created man in his own image. That word man is actually the generic term for human, Adam. And as we will see in chapter 2, the male creature was named Adam, human, 
because he was the representative head of the whole human race. But the point here is that the Bible declares that when God created humanity in his own image, when God conferred that special status and unique value and dignity upon humanity, he conferred it upon the female as well as the male human. The Bible declares that the female equally as well as the male is created in the image of God. Now, again, that might be something that we might take for granted, but if you would please think about it again, please. The book of Genesis is not a Hallmark card. (laughs) It was written, get it. It was written 3,400 years ago in the ancient Near East. This is an astounding statement. In the image of God, male and female, He created them. That's a testimony to the divine inspiration of Scripture. It proves that the Bible and the biblical Christian faith are not oppressively anti-woman, as so many feminists today would have us believe. Oh, true enough, true enough, as with racism, Christians throughout the centuries have gotten this wrong and continue to get it wrong. But racism and sexism don't come from the Bible and are not supported by the Bible. Rather, as is racism, sexism, against women is a sinful corruption of what the Bible teaches from the very beginning. It is a corruption of God's very good creation of humanity, male and female, in His own image. And we will see this beautifully illustrated when we read the Genesis 2 account of the creation of Eve out of the rib of Adam, which is not a denigration of the woman but is in fact the elevation of the woman as the crowning jewel of creation. Far from portraying the woman as some kind of second-class human, the Bible actually celebrates the woman as the one who brings to fulfillment God's plan to create humanity in His own image. Therefore, as Bible-believing people, we ought to make sure that we treat women with the honor and respect due to an image-bearer of the Creator. This point leads to the next, which is the sanctity of human sexuality. In the image of God, male and female, He created them. Male and female. Male and female. There are two genders. Male and female. There is not a third category. There is not an other box to check. The the two genders, male and female, are determined, defined, and identified by physiological anatomy. Now, American society has plunged itself into irrationality by thinking that it can overthrow the given reality of physiological gender identity, even to the point of allowing children, supposedly, to determine or choose their gender. 
Now that, my friends, is a world without God. It's a world at war with God. No matter how real and painful gender confusion and gender dysphoria can be in a clinical sense, it is surely no cause for celebration. It's cause for compassion, but it's not cause for celebration. Those who advocate the overthrow of all sexual morals are now using this issue to undermine the foundation of the sanctity of, of, of human sexuality. But it's a deeply, deeply spiritual issue. To suppose that, well, you know, I, I can decide what my I can decide whether I'm a man or a woman. That is to say, I create myself. That is to say, I am God. God created humanity in his own image, male and female, in distinction from the other creatures for the purpose of blessing all human society in general, with the institution of monogamous marriage to provide for the procreation and nurture of children within a secure family environment. And God's command, be fruitful and multiply, be fruitful and multiply, is the first command given to his human creatures. That implies anatomy at work. It's clear from the beginning that God's purposes for his creation include the sanctity of sexuality, male and female, for his own glory. He loves babies. He loves families. He wants to fill the earth with them because... They too are to bear his image, be his representatives upon the earth. And finally, there is the sanctity of the purpose or the ultimate goal of human life, the special purpose of human life, namely to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. In the beginning, as we've said, we were created to bear God's image, to reflect his glory, indeed to be the visible image of the invisible God by living God-honoring lives of holiness and righteousness and wisdom and power. And on behalf of God, exercising His Lordship over the earth. This is what we've lost. We've lost. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so in every capacity of our humanness, intellect, emotions, desires, and will, the totality of our human nature has been corrupted by sin. In our fallen nature, we are bent in on ourselves and we are but a pale reflection of the glory in which Adam and Eve were created. They were created as the visible image of the invisible God upon the earth, but that image now has been defaced and marred and obscured by sin due to our fall. We've lost the glory in which and for which we were created. But the eternal Son of God came into the world to restore us to the sanctity of our purpose and goal, to restore us in holiness and righteousness, His holiness and righteousness. So that we might be restored into fellowship with our Creator, God the Father Almighty. And again, live that life for which we were created in communion with God and with one another. So what's the remedy? Here it is. This is the beautiful remedy. Colossians 1.15 says that He, Jesus Christ, is the image of the invisible God. He's the one. He's the true one who can restore us in that image. Hebrews 1.3 says that He, Jesus Christ, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. That's what we were to be 
But it's only found in Christ. He is the true pattern of our true humanity. He is the true pattern of our true humanity. He is the restorer of our true humanity. And He's that for us on our behalf, the second Adam, for our redemption and our restoration. Colossians 3.10 says that through faith in Christ, believers in Christ are being renewed after the image of our Creator. Colossians 3.10. That's our sanctification. We're being made over. We're being remade after the likeness of our Creator. Being restored to what we lost. In Christ and through Christ we are restored and renewed for a life which glorify God, glorifies God and enjoys Him forever. A life of meaning and purpose, a life of order and beauty which reflects the goodness and the wisdom and the grace of God our Creator. This is eternal life in Jesus Christ who united Himself with us in our human nature without sin so that he might bear our sins, our curse in his own body on the tree to redeem us and to restore us for life in communion with God, bearing and reflecting the image of his glory forever. To his name be all praise. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word of truth which speaks to us where we are. And we pray, our Father in heaven, that by the working of your Spirit in our minds and in our hearts, uh, we would turn again to you with repentance for all of our sins and a resolve to live more faithfully as your people and to reflect your glory throughout all the earth. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. In response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, let us stand to affirm our faith, the faith of the one church of Jesus Christ throughout history and throughout the world. We say together the Apostles' Creed. Christian, in whom do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, the Son of the Son of our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born